This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Elizabeth Mendenhall, an associate professor in the Department of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. I met Elizabeth at a fisheries policy workshop in Pittsburgh earlier this year. This was jointly hosted by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. This was really a terrific event that we discussed towards the end of the interview. This is in fact the first of a series of interviews that I will be conducting with the participants of this workshop in collaboration with each of these two centers. Elizabeth's research centers on ocean governance, especially the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. During our conversation, we discussed several papers that Elizabeth has written on this convention and how specific elements of it have impacted the relationships between states and their ability to solve international environmental problems such as plastic pollution. As someone who specializes in the study of local community-based natural resource management, it has sometimes been hard for me to make sense of international relationships between state entities, which is at the opposite end of the spectrum. Talking with Elizabeth helped me think about large-scale environmental governance and how, in some ways at least, a group of sovereign states getting together to make decisions is similar to the self-governing farmers and fishers that I have worked with. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth Mendenhall. So, Elizabeth, you just told me before we start recording that you got tenure. So congratulations on that. That's very exciting. How, how recent is that? Thank you. Well, the job title change is official as of January 1st. The job title change is official as of July 1st. Okay. <laughs> um, but the tenure evaluation is sort of like a drip, drip, drip over the course of an academic year. So I, I sort of saw it coming for a while and it's official as of July 1st. And I didn't think it would make a difference to me um, because I sort of knew what to expect, but it has. I feel different in a good Can way. In a good way. I'd love to hear more about that because I think there's these, these big moments where the world kind of gives you this affirmation that are not that common, as we all know. And it's always interesting to ask ourselves and uh, people around us, like, how are we going to respond? Yeah, I think um, I always felt sort of unburdened anyway, like I'm willing to say what I think, even if it's a bit controversial, but I feel even less burdened. Um, I don't think twice about who might think what about what I just said. And in my scholarship, I don't really make anybody mad as far as I'm aware, but I do say my perspective on the Law of the Sea Convention, which is often different than the US State Department's perspective. Um, and I want to be able to keep doing that. And I feel more secure doing that now that I have tenure. Um, but it was a bit anticlimactic too, or or disorienting maybe, because like you said, there's not that many situations in the world where you get this sort of big affirmation, you've done it, you've earned this. And so the couple of months after I realized, I'm not sure what my, my big goal is now, um, you know, because before it was meeting the standards and exceeding the standards of tenure. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? And the answer right. is relatively simple. I just keep doing what I'm doing. But it was a change of mindset. I mean, I, I feel like I had that similar uh, challenge. Uh, it was five years ago for me, and it is this kind of existential, be too strong a word for it. But you've you've oriented yourself around like this particular goal, 
And now that's just gone. And it is a privilege, but you kind of have to ask yourself like, okay, is it more of the same? Is it different? And actually part of my answer was this podcast, which was the answer being that there's going to be some things that are different um, as well. So Elizabeth, I have, have this correct that you are now then an associate professor in the Department of Marine Affairs at the University of Rhode Island. That's all correct? That's right. I also have a limited joint appointment in the political science department. My classes are cross-listed and I can serve on committees for their international relations master's students. But I that's something I asked for that joint appointment because I wanted to maintain an association with political science. Um, and I want to be able to sort of brand myself as in marine affairs, but also I do international relations. So I just like having that connection and, you know, being invited to their events and having their students in my classes. Um, and I should also mention I'm the director of our graduate program in marine affairs. So I meet with a lot of people who are interested in making a career change that's focusing on law and policy, like they may be scientists before um, or they may have, have been in government and they want to do social science research. Um, so I'm always happy to talk to people who are interested in, in marine affairs for graduate study. Okay, so a couple immediate questions spring to mind. One is, so I, you also have a PhD in political science. So would you call yourself a political scientist? That's straightforward. Yeah, or no? but usually when I do it, I use scare quotes around the scientist part. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah, and I would call myself whatever ist version of international relations um, there could be, because I think that better describes what I do. A lot of political scientists do a lot of data collection. They use quantitative methods. They're doing hypothesis testing. Um, and in international relations, it's sort of different. Like the, the angle is more often theory development um, and historical case research. Um, and so there's more focus on theory, less focus on methods. And, and we sort of assume most of us in international relations from the get-go that the world is organized into modern sovereign territorial states. And our main question is, is how are they behaving, you know, on their own and, and in interaction with one another? So my primary identification or affiliation is with international relations as a subfield of political science. As someone who has a PhD in public affairs and has received a lot of blank stares when I tell them that, not knowing what it means, what, is, what does marine affairs mean to you? What is kind of the identity of your department and how do you see that? Oh, if we could answer that question, our faculty meetings would be so much more efficient. <laughs> uh, there is no one dominant answer to that question in our department or in similar departments that are like maritime studies or um, you know, maritime policy. Uh, so marine affairs kind of is what people in our department and uh, associated with our degree um, do. I usually describe it as we study the ocean, especially the parts where, where people have interests in the ocean. So we cover law, policy, but also values, perceptions, community behavior towards the ocean. We're basically the social science um of the ocean as opposed to oceanography or marine biology that's the natural science or the hard science that studies the ocean. Okay, got it. So Elizabeth, now it's time for the origin story question. Can you tell me what initially got you interested in international relations? Was it always um, in conjunction with an interest in the environment, with the oceans? You have a PhD in, in political science. How do you make sense of 
your career up to this point? 10 words or less? 10 words or less, really? No, no, no. <laughs> it's just me kind of being trying to communicate that I'm self-aware yeah. of the loadedness right. of such a question. Well, I mean, it was like multiple streams that came together around the end of my college career when I was going from my bachelor's to my PhD. Um, I was always interested in the environment, but I grew up in Kansas, so the landlocked environment. So I, I got scuba certified in a lake. I was in um, the Venture Scouts, which is a co-ed Boy Scout program, and we would go hiking and camping once a month. So, you know, I cared about the natural world and I was concerned about the environment. And I grew up in a time where myself and my peers and my family, we were like coming to terms with, okay, global warming, climate change, is this real? What does it look like? So that was a big part of my, um, I guess, formation as a marine affairs professional was sort of having this understanding about what's happening on the planet. Because I also was really interested in science fiction, watched a lot of Star Trek, The Next Generation growing up. And I have read a lot of science fiction. I love Neil Stevenson and Kim Stanley Robinson. So I was always sort of thinking holistically about the species, about the planet. But um, I got into politics through debate. And I, I liked debate because honestly, I'm a youngest child. I like being the center of attention. I, I found out as an adult that my family used to play the quiet game just to get me to be quiet. <laughs> they would make it a competition that I would want to win. So then I would shut up for several minutes and always lose. Um, so I had a lot of, you know, public speaking and argumentative and like energy. And I always wanted to be funny. And so I got into that activity and the competition really kept me going. I liked going to tournaments um, and the topics would switch. It would be a domestic politics topic, an international politics topic, and then a judicial topic, like about court rulings. And I always really liked the international ones. So I followed debate. I did debate in college at Kansas State. Um, and I majored in political science and philosophy. And when I got to graduation and I ran out of debate eligibility, I just thought, I want more school. Um, I'm not done learning. I really like the classroom environment. And I think I can go beyond what I've already learned. So I got a PhD because I just wanted more college. And I really didn't know what I was getting into. My um, Nobody in my family has a graduate degree. They were just unconditionally supportive of, you know, reach for the stars, Beth, um, which is nice. But uh, meant that I lacked some specific guidance, maybe. And I got into my PhD program. I was rejected from 13 programs. One I would have had to take on loans for. One was a very small stipend. And then this third one that I got into was a good deal. It was a PhD in political science, came with tuition and a stipend. So it was an obvious choice. And when I got there, I, I it was a shock. I was 23 years old. I was one of the only PhD students that didn't have a master's degree. A professor told me I wasn't doing graduate level work. I would sometimes cry after class, but I had a huge chip on my shoulder. I thought I, I can do this. And from debate, I had this experience of, you know, being from Kansas state and you're debating Harvard. And sometimes Harvard's not that nice to you. And so I had this like hard outer shell. There are some very nice debaters at Harvard, I will say. Um, I just kept and this was all at Johns Hopkins. Sorry to interrupt. At Johns Hopkins. Yeah, in Baltimore. In Baltimore, yeah. Wonderful political science department. Uh, my advisor was Daniel Dudney, who also had done debate, also loved science fiction. 
and we just had great conversations. So I would, you know, I was his teaching assistant. I would go to the, his undergrad classes that I wasn't TAing for just because I enjoyed, it was so easy to learn from him. And I always um, wanted to do a dissertation topic about the ocean and ocean governance. But the message that I received again and again in my department and classes at conferences was that the ocean is too niche of a topic for international relations. And so I expanded to global commons research. My dissertation was supposed to cover the ocean, outer space, the atmosphere, and the electromagnetic spectrum. In the title of your dissertation, I was because like, okay, they're doing oceans. Here we go. And like, what outer space? Yeah. Okay. So. so this is the real talk. This is the real story. So I had those four global commons spaces. And I was going to ask the same types of questions about basically how the governance regime relates to scientific knowledge production and technological change. So I started to look in the electromagnetic spectrum. I got some books, read some articles, and I realized this wasn't really a global commons of the same type as the others because of like attenuation losses. It, it made more sense to manage it more regionally or more locally. So honestly, I just stopped mentioning the electromagnetic spectrum in describing my, my research and no one ever called me on it. So that was a part of the project and it went away. And then I was, you know, doing the ocean chapters because I was really interested in those. I did a space chapter. My advisor was writing a book on outer space at the time. It's called Dark Skies. It's fantastic. And then this job ad came up at the University of Rhode Island Department of Marine Affairs, and they wanted someone who specialized in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is what I wanted to do all along. So I got my advisor and my committee to agree to write letters of recommendation and say that I could finish my dissertation in time for this job. And then I got the job. Um, and so my advisor said, you're going to do a job focused on ocean governance. Let's cut the atmosphere chapter. You know, the drafts, I didn't love them anyway. Let's stick with the space chapter, expand from one ocean chapter to I ended up with four ocean chapters. So my dissertation is it's unbalanced in favor of the ocean, but as a way to prepare me for this job. And I'd love to get back into outer space governance research. Um, but, you know, as a professor, you're so time pressured that you have to feed multiple birds with one scone and have your teaching and your research and your advising all overlap. So I'm really deeply invested in ocean governance now. Some path dependence there. Yeah, I'm sure that was 10 words or less. Yep, yep. Um, I mentioned to you before that in preparing for this, I read some of your work and I'm very focused on community-based natural resource management, local scale. And so when I dive into your work, there's a lot of different entities that you confront. I think a lot of listeners are coming uh, from the same place I am. I think we need to kind of be onboarded almost here. Sorry to kind of ask you to do that labor for us. But can you talk to us? You already mentioned the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Can you just tell me what a, a UN convention is? How do we think about its role as a kind of social object and how it's maybe different from other types of international agreements like treaties? Absolutely. A convention and a treaty in this context are the same thing. Conventions are really general terms. So we use that term to describe our big professional meetings also. But there are some international treaties that are are called conventions um, i think in general because they they cover more they're more comprehensive they're they're the framework agreement that then we will add to later 
So in, in my world, we have the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOSE. If your listeners take away one acronym, it's UNCLOSE. Um, but there's also the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. There's the Convention on Biological Diversity. And all of these are formal international agreements between states that we also call treaties. So what they have in common is that they're written down. They're agreed to by states who, who generally negotiate them before the text is finalized and then ratify them so that they're consenting to be bound by the rules in those treaties. And so those treaties represent agreement between states. And, and states, I, I know, is also a specialized term from international relations and political science. Um, and a lot of students get confused because, you know, here we are in the state of Rhode Island and I'm from the state of Kansas. Those are all sub-state, or we often say sub-national units of government. So here in the U.S., we have states, but Canada has provinces. You have many countries that don't subdivide in that way. So a state is just a government that has sovereignty over a people and a territory. Colloquially, we use the term country. State is like the term of art. There's 190 some states in the world. Um, most of them are United Nations members. And so states make treaties to organize their relations with one another. And UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is just one of those big treaties. So how do you think about the nature of the state? You know, again, so coming from a very localized place, when I hear about like st the, st the, st the statement like states making agreements with each other, my brain hears it as shorthand for some people from some states making agreements with each other in a room representing uh, a broad but not necessarily representative set of interests that they've been charged with. And in the study of local governance, we worry a lot about, you know, one of the, the, the difference between formal rules and informal norms. And I feel like that's something that people wonder a lot about, too, about these conventions or treaties is, you know, how much are, how, how real are they? I think that's the main question is like, how do you think about how real these things are versus I don't want to say not real. Um, but how do we think about like the nature of states as a particular kind of actor that historically is relatively new on the scene? How do you think about them? And through your thoughts about how what the actual identity of these things are, how do we think about the enforceability of these agreements? Because it's not the same thing as like 20 people in a room getting together as kind of their own organic community. But I feel like we kind of borrow from that image in our characterizations of these other things, or at least I do. You just asked like all the biggest questions of international relations. Okay. <laughs> so I'll do my best. Um, how do I think about states? Primarily as the dominant unit of political organization on the planet Earth. With the exception of Antarctica, all the land territory on the Earth is divided into discrete territorial units. And for each one of them, there's one state organized as a government that exercises sovereignty over that territory and the people under its jurisdiction. So residents in that territory or citizens of that state. So states are bad in a lot of ways. They're good in a lot of ways, but most importantly, they just are like that. That is, they are relatively new, but in the, since the 20th century, since after World War II, since decolonization, which is an incomplete process, but um, states are how we organize things on the planet. 
And so in terms of the question of, you know, whose states do interests or whose interests rather do states represent, we have a lot of theories about states getting their legitimacy um, from representing the interests of their people. But in general, states have that authority because they're supposed to provide defense to their, their population, their territory. They're supposed to provide security. So the, the core function of the state is to provide security to the population and the territory under a state's jurisdiction. But we also live in a capitalist globalized economy. And so states are also very interested in economic growth. Um, they want trade to bring products into their markets. They want to have growth and profits. They want jobs for their citizens. So states do a lot of things for their people and their territory, but the primary things they do are security and economic growth or economic management. So before I get into the question of like how real are treaties, there's just a couple of interesting things to note about states as the way we organize politics on the planet. The first is that every state is supposed to be equally sovereign as any other state. Um, and so Nauru, a small island state with a population of 10,000, is just as sovereign over its people and its territory as China, with over a billion people, is over its population and its territory. And when they're at the United Nations, they each have one seat and they each get one vote. Um, and so there's this norm of sovereign equality that when you're doing international decision making, each sovereign state counts just as much as each other sovereign state. But of course, there's power relations happening too. You know, China has more leverage over economic connections, over security issues. There's, you know, also cultural dominance is a real thing. And so in practice, power relations shape a lot of what states do. The last key fact is that in, in international relations, we say we live in an anarchic world. It doesn't mean that it's totally chaotic, although there is a fair amount of chaos. It just means there's no world government. And so if we're going to do things as a whole, as the human species, um, we need states to work together to, to cooperate and come to an agreement about what our goals are and how we're supposed to get to those goals. So that's what the UN is supposed to be for. It's a forum for sovereign states to come together to cooperate and make decisions about you know, the best interests of all of us. So you, you asked this question, like how real are treaties or how real is the law of the sea convention? Another way of asking that question is do treaties shape state behavior? Like do they change anything as a result of the treaty existing and them ratifying the treaty? And remember that ratification means they consent to be bound by the treaty. It's like their formal saying, yeah, I'm gonna follow this treaty. Enforceability is a really hard question, especially when you're talking about the middle of the ocean, where it's kind of easy to get away with stuff. And there is no world government, there is no world police, there are international courts, but they're not used very often. So treaties often work when there are costs and benefits associated with compliance. There's benefits to compliance and there's costs to non-compliance. But that's a really hard thing to do because states don't wanna agree to accept any kind of punishment. You know, so a lot of times the costs are more reputational or more normative than they are material. 
if you sign a treaty or ratify a treaty rather with, you know, five other states and then you violate it right away, nobody else is going to make treaties with you. Um, like your your word is weakened as a result. And, and also you'll look like a bad actor on the international stage. So even when states violate treaties, they make efforts to, to say that they are not violating them. Um, so that's a lot of the the driver of why states comply with international treaties. There are some some cases where you get access to things if you comply. Um, but usually those are, are trade related. Like you can have access to our markets if you prove that your goods meet these certain standards. Um, but it's a hard thing to get states to agree to actual costs to noncompliance. So can we go back to the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS? Can, can you talk to me a bit about the origins of, of that convention? Yeah, okay, so UNCLOS was negotiated between 1973 and 1982. So the short answer of where it comes from is it comes from the 70s. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. We call it the, the Constitution for the Oceans. Um, not formally, but informally, that's, that's how people refer to it, because it's a framework agreement. It's supposed to be comprehensive. So for every part of the ocean, it tells you who can do what in that part of the ocean. And it creates roles for states. Coastal states can do this, flag states can do that, port states can do this. Um, we had to negotiate a new convention for the law of the sea because we had rules before. Um, we made some rules in the 50s, but they, they didn't cover all the issues we wanted to. Not a lot of states had ratified all of them. And there were new issues cropping up. So a big one was in the 60s, there was a lot of hype about seabed minerals that we didn't have any rules for. And in fact, the rules we had for the seafloor from the 50s were that coastal states like the United States or, or Brazil or Nigeria could claim seafloor as far out as they could exploit. So if you can technologically exploit further and further out, you can claim as sovereign territory more and more seabed. And in the 50s and 60s, you know, as decolonization is getting underway, you have all these newly independent former colonies that are like, these are terrible rules. <laughs> like these, these rules just mean that the powerful get more power, that those who are most technologically advanced get more of the seafloor and more of its resources. So there was this big movement to create a new international economic order that basically was based on the idea that the colonial states built the political and economic system of the world and it needs to be rebuilt to be fairer for everyone. And so the Law of the Sea Convention came in part out of that movement because we need rules that protect the access of, of everyone to the ocean um, and ensure that everyone can benefit from ocean resources. And also these newly independent states were really distrustful of the surveillance that seemed to be happening off their coastlines um, and the distant water fishing fleets that were coming to take the fish and the whales that they perceived as theirs. Um, and so a lot of it was sort of resource competition and concerns about resource scarcity. Um, so bottom line, there were new members of the international system that wanted new rules that were more just and equitable. And there were new things happening in the ocean that we didn't have rules for yet. So we needed to do it like, like a total redo of the law of the sea. And it took nine years, um, but we got it. 
And it's, it's not a perfect treaty, but it's not going anywhere. There's so much sunk cost into unclose that we have to work with what we've got. Would you say you admire the convention? Like it, it sounds like it solved a real problem, but I almost feel kind of like, I don't want to call it affection, but just kind of this sense of like, you call it a constitution. Lots of people feel loyalty to a document that's called a constitution. This is going to make me sound crazy, but I love it. Okay. <laughs> I definitely love it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of making my life's work around it. Um, I describe my research agenda as about the drivers and mechanisms of change in UNCLOSE because it's not perfect. It could be better and we need it to be better. So like, how can we modify it? How can we interpret it differently? How can we augment it? That's, that's what I want to know. And I should add, it's sort of related to my origin story, but also a key point about UNCLOSE. What the fact that initially piqued my interest in UNCLOSE was that in 1977, we discovered hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean that are, you know, these really unique places with unique ecosystems, really interesting creatures. And I thought, well, wait a second, we were four years into the law of the sea negotiations and we made this really important discovery about the sea floor. Like, how could this treaty possibly account for all this new scientific understanding about the sea floor? So that was my initial interest is thinking about, okay, we're learning more about the ocean but the treaty is staying the same. So how can our knowledge, new knowledge be accounted for in how the treaty is interpreted or applied? Um, so yeah, I, I'm really into it. So let's unpack that more. In your writing, you talk explicitly about different elements uh, related to the treaty. So can we talk a bit more about these and the functions that you see them or hope to see them play? what specific elements of the convention you find so promising? Yeah, but I have to start with the political geography created by UNCLOS. The most important thing UNCLOS did was create this map of the ocean um, by dividing it into different zones. And depending on the zone, you have different rights and duties. And one very common misconception about UNCLOS is that the zones go all the way up and down from the sea surface through the water column to the sea floor. There's actually a different set of zones for the water than for the sea floor. So most people are familiar with the 12 nautical mile territorial sea, the 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, and then out in the middle is called the high seas. There's actually no such thing as international waters. When people use that phrase, sometimes they mean the high seas, Sometimes they mean the high seas and the exclusive economic zone. So I, I don't use that term myself. For the seafloor, you have the continental shelf, the legal continental shelf, which is out to 200 nautical miles, but can be extended beyond that. And then beyond the continental shelf is what's called the area, which is a very uncreative name. But the area is the part of the ocean that is the common heritage of all humans. Um, and so it, it's publicly, collectively owned by all humans, and all of us are supposed to benefit from it. So before I talk a little more about common heritage, I just want to establish that the closer you are to the coastline, the more sovereign rights the coastal state has. So in the exclusive economic zone, the coastal state has the sovereign rights over living resources to explore, exploit, conserve, and manage those resources. That's the right of the coastal state. 
For the continental shelf, they have sovereign rights over non-living resources, minerals, oil, and gas. So those zones are like the resource control zones near a coastal state. In the middle of the ocean, you have the high seas up in the water and the area and the seafloor. And they're both global commons in that they're shared international space, but they are fundamentally different in terms of the principle that underlies that global commons. So for the high seas, it's freedom of the seas. Article 87 of UNCLOS says all states have freedoms of fishing, navigation, scientific research, cable lane, among other freedoms. So the default legal regime is open access. If you want to go out there and use the resources, you can. We added extra layers later, like, yeah, you can fish here, but you have to work with other states to make sure that there's rules and you have to follow those rules. But the default presumption is you want to go out there and use it, you can. The area or the international seabed is underpinned by the common heritage principle, very different than freedom of the seas. Freedom of the seas has existed for centuries. Common heritage was a product of the 60s. It's a reflection of that new international economic order. The common heritage idea is that everyone owns the minerals on the seafloor, so everyone should benefit and should benefit equitably. So people may have heard in the news about the International Seabed Authority located in Kingston, Jamaica. The International Seabed Authority was created by UNCLOS and its job is to control, organize, and manage seabed mining in the interests of all humans. So when seabed mining gets going, the International Seabed Authority's job includes taking some money from that and redistributing it to developing countries in particular. And as a side note, that's the main reason the United States has not ratified UNCLOS, because in the 80s, that sounded way too much like communism. And even today, it's um, Republicans in the Senate that oppose ratification of UNCLOS, mostly because of the Common Heritage and the International Seabed Authority. And that issue is just going to ramp up, I suppose, because I keep on hearing more and more about how the renewable energy revolution is going to be dependent on minerals from the seabed. Yeah, it's a really difficult um, debate. I had a student ask me yesterday what my views are on it. And I really had to think about it because it's it's so complicated. And But I use it for my undergraduate students, especially because a lot of them, you know, they're environmentalists. They have strong views. They're very motivated and they want to do the green thing, the sustainable thing. And with international seabed mining, it's like, do you choose habitat? destruction, but you get a fast renewable energy transition? Or do you protect that habitat, but climate change may destroy it in other ways? There's not yeah. a right answer. But I will say that the idea that seabed minerals will power the renewable energy transition, that is a marketing angle for seabed mining companies. I'm not saying it's it's true or not, but it is a story that only recently started to be told. Okay. Okay, and so this, the International Seabed Authority was created by UNCLOS, so that's part of the, and, th and that helps implement this principle of a common heritage of humankind. Yeah, it administers the international seabed in line with the common heritage principle. Very different okay. than the high seas, which have all these different regional and sectoral organizations, and the high seas are a lot less coordinated than the seabed is. Hmm. And you mentioned a map with zones. Is that a map someone can just find? 
and oh yeah you just google image search for unclosed zones you'll find it okay there's a there's complications but one thing that people might be very interested in is this idea of extending the continental shelf we actually don't know where all the borders between continental shelves and the area are because another institution that unclosed created that nobody knows about it's called the commission on the limits of the continental shelf it's 21 scientists chilling in new york right now that receive submissions from coastal states who are trying to extend their continental shelf and they've received submissions from over 80 states at this point there's a huge backlog and those states are waiting for a recommendation about how far out their continental shelf can go so there's a lot of parts of the sea floor that we don't know if they belong to everyone or if they belong to that particular coastal state and the united so, states is preparing sorry. to make our claim soon and it's it's going to be very interesting okay where in just reality does most of this go down in New York City? Like, is it around the world? I'm just trying to like get a, a, a social picture here. A lot of it's in New York because that's where UN headquarters are. That's where the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf is. Um, but the International Seabed Authority is in Kingston, Jamaica on purpose because most of the headquarters are in North America and Europe. And you put a, the headquarters of a new international organization, that's prestige, that's jobs, that's rent. You know, there's, there's benefit to that. So that's in Jamaica. And then there's also the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, a new court created by UNCLOSE. That's in Hamburg, Germany. Um, so it happens all over the place, but there are those key centers of decision making. As a part of your research, do you visit these places in person? Uh, I was... Lucky to be able to visit the United Nations headquarters for the negotiations for our newest ocean governance treaty, the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction or BBNJ treaty. But otherwise, no, I mean, it's it's a funding issue. It's a time issue. But also there's so much information available online, like the International Seabed Authority has been criticized for not being more transparent, but there is so much stuff on their website um, that it's still possible for me to do research on change and ocean governance just from my office in Rhode Island. Okay. Elizabeth, are there other elements of UNCLOSE that you wanted to talk about? I, I also made a note that you talk fairly extensively about its dispute resolution mechanisms as yeah. well. There's, I'll, I'll, I wanna share some content, but I have a point I wanna make about dispute settlement too. One of the reasons UNCLOSE is so great is that it has a compulsory dispute settlement system. Um, if states disagree about how UNCLOSE applies to a situation, they're supposed to take it to court. There are carve-outs for that, like if it's a military issue or it's a boundary disagreement um, or if it's a question of surplus fish. But in general, you're supposed to take it to court, and a lot of states have. The case that most people know about is the Philippines versus China in the South China Sea. Um, there was a 2016 ruling that, that China just rejected. And China gets a lot of criticism for rejecting that court decision, which was very much in favor of the Philippines. And rightly so, like it's bad for the credibility of UNCLOSE. It's bad for the dispute settlement system as a whole that China is not abiding by this ruling. But a lot of that criticism comes from the United States and the United Kingdom. So I want to note 
that there have also been international court rulings about the Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean, which when Mauritius was breaking away from its former colonial power of the UK, the UK divided it up, kept some islands for themselves, kicked out the Chagosians, and leased it to the United States for a military base on Diego Garcia. The UK has lost two international court rulings that said, you have to give that back. That doesn't belong to you. And the US and the UK are totally ignoring those rulings. So the idea that the US supports the rule of law at, at, at sea and China does not isn't quite right. All the great powers, China, Russia, and the United States especially, have, I'll, I'll say, imperfect records <laughs> on um, following the unclosed system and the dispute settlement system, especially. So I just wanted your listeners to know that. <laughs> was there more about the dispute resolution, Elizabeth, you wanted to share? Or was uh, it... No, other than, I mean, there is a system out there. It's not used very often for environmental issues. There's only two environmental related cases that have gone through this international court system. It could be used more, but it requires states to be interested in, in bringing cases. And a lot of states are hesitant to delegate any kind of decision-making authority to a third party, especially in the context of a dispute, and especially when they're powerful states. It's easier for them to deal with things bilaterally and to negotiate, especially if they're the more powerful actor. So the system is out there. It's technically compulsory for a lot of issues, but it's underutilized in parts because states don't want to utilize it. I mean, it seems like it, just taking a step back, the core issue here is really about environmental property rights. Who can exercise ownership over what aspects of the environment under what conditions? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of security interests at play too around freedom of navigation, especially. But mm. it's really easy for me to divide up my syllabus and like do the environmental and the resource issues and then the security issues. Because they're dealt with in different parts of the treaty, you know, different ministries or in the U.S. case departments deal with those issues, but they're all combined in the Law of the Sea Convention. Okay. So you mentioned this biodiversity beyond nat national jurisdiction or BB&J agreement. That's essentially just happened, right? And in your work, you've documented the process by which it passed. Could you talk to us about this process and what your hopes are for this agreement? Yeah, so the BBNJ Treaty is a follow-on to UNCLOSE. They call it an implementing agreement. It's the third one. Um, the first two were in the 90s. So it's really the first big ocean governance treaty we've gotten that's, that's new in the last 20, 25 years. So it's a, it's a really big deal. And the efforts to negotiate, to design and then negotiate over the design, this agreement, they span all the way back to the early 2000s. But the formal negotiations began in 2018, and they were very ambitious, the International Community of States, and said, we only need four negotiation sessions, and then we got a fifth, and then they extended the fifth. So it was really six two-week sessions at the UN, and a lot of intercessional work, you know, meetings and communications. Um, and so we have this new treaty that covers four issue areas, and those issue areas or that agenda was decided in advance. So there wasn't much negotiation once the negotiations began about what the treaty should cover. Everyone knew it would cover two environmental issues, and those are environmental impact assessments and marine protected areas. 
and two more economic kind of justice issues, marine genetic resources and capacity building and technology transfer. So the BBNJ agreement covers those four issues. And the, the BNJ, Beyond National Jurisdiction, points to the fact that this treaty only applies to the high seas and the area or the international seabed. And it drives me crazy that people are calling this the high seas treaty. Because if you recall, the high seas are governed by the principle of freedom of the seas. That, that's biasing our understanding and our interpretation of the BBNJ treaty in favor of this like open access principle. But common heritage is in there too. And it applies to marine genetic resources, many of which are in the area on the international seabed. And so that was a big debate. Like we said, oh, common heritage in the 70s, but we really meant the minerals. Does it also apply to the genetic resources? Um, and in the end, common heritage did end up in the treaty in, in a slightly modified way, but it's there. But at this point, the negotiations are over, but it's not time to celebrate yet because for the treaty to activate, essentially, to enter into force, we need 60 states to ratify it. And ratification is not an easy thing to do. In the United States, you need two thirds of the Senate to vote to ratify a treaty, which is not gonna happen anytime soon. But once 60 states ratify it, which could be a few years, then the treaty will enter into force and the conference of parties or the COP will meet and they'll start doing things. They'll start setting up subsidiary bodies and they'll start electing people to those bodies. And then states will start proposing, oh, we should have a protected area here. And this is how we're gonna do an environmental impact assessment there. So the, the treaty is written, it's done. States can ratify it now, but it won't actually lead to marine protected areas beyond national jurisdiction for some time to come. So the, the pressure needs to remain on, um, but there's a real temptation to declare victory. So you've seen a lot of news articles that are like, oh, the BBNJ treaty, it's gonna help us achieve the 30 by 30 goal that we protect 30% of the ocean. So maybe it will, but that requires states to propose protected areas to the BBNJ body once it is enforced and then for review to happen and then designation to happen, and then it will be implemented and start shaping behavior. So there's a lot more to come and a lot more to study. Um, and I definitely plan to study the process once the treaty enters into force. Um, it's nice, as a researcher, it's nice to have this little break between the negotiations ending and, and starting again once the treaty enters into force. Um, so I'm, I'm tentatively optimistic that it will happen quickly and actually do things, but tentatively. Yeah, I can imagine that it kind of gives you an interannual seasonality to your work, which can be yeah. nice. So, um, Elizabeth, I'm also aware in diving into a lot of these details that I've skipped over a type of question I want to ask you, which is, because you've looked at how these arrangements are or are not able to confront specific issues. Like in one paper you share with me, you're talking specifically about plastic pollution. So I'd love to make sure that we cover that angle as well here. Could you talk just a bit about, for example, this issue of plastic pollution and how we should think about the relationship between these mechanisms and confronting what for many people seems like an intractable international environmental issue like plastic pollution? Yeah, um, 
I got into writing about plastic pollution to satisfy my own curiosity because it was so hard to understand given UNCLOS, which makes all these great rules, including an obligation to preserve and protect the marine environment. Why is this problem so bad? And why does it seem like we're not doing much about it? And once you write one plastics paper, you get invited to write more and more and more, and you kind of get sucked into the plastics world. So I've started to resist a little bit because I'm an unclosed scholar. I, I don't have the bandwidth to follow these negotiations for a new plastics treaty. So my publications in the, the last year or so have been on this angle of what does unclosed contribute to efforts against plastic pollution. And I've reached the conclusion that UNCLOS has a lot of good stuff in it, but the delegates didn't have plastic pollution in mind in the 70s. When they were thinking about land-based pollution, like pollution that goes from the land to the sea, they were thinking about runoff. They were thinking about sewage. They were thinking about dead zones. And what those things have in common is the cause is on land and the consequence is relatively near shore. It's in your coastal zone. So coastal states have their own domestic incentives to prevent that land-based pollution because it's just going to hurt them and their coastal zones. Plastic, of course, is much more durable, and a lot of it ends up in the high seas or in the area on the international seabed in these shared zones. Um, and so it's much easier for states to say, well, that's not my problem, and I didn't cause that, and well, we're going to have to work together to solve that. It's not on me. But there is this, this temptation to think, okay, well, let's start from scratch. What do we need? What do we want the treaty to say? And in those kinds of like popular media conversations, I hear a lot of reinvention of the wheel because UNCLOSE says in part 12, it already says for land-based pollution, states have the obligation to reduce, prevent, and control land-based pollution using all necessary measures and the best, best practical means. It's like all necessary, best, reduce, prevent, and control. That's the language that we want in a treaty but we've already got it. <laughs> so the question is, why isn't it working? Or how could we activate the treaty language we've already agreed to in order to shape state behavior? And so one of my recent papers looks into, okay, how could the dispute settlement mechanism be used? How is the common heritage relevant to this? Um, why did this part of UNCLOSE fail? And are we going to do that in the plastics treaty? And, and a lot of the problem, honestly, is just imprecise treaty language. Who's going to say what's the necessary measure? How, how do you determine whether or not a reduction has happened? But I think one of the main issues is that why would any state bring another state to court for not meeting those environmental obligations when it knows that itself is not meeting those obligations. Like states don't wanna throw shade at each other for violating this treaty because they know it will come back on them. Um, and so I'm really interested in this new plastics treaty, what it might add, whether it will add anything in terms of obligations towards the ocean. Um, but I, I think I'm done with plastics research, at least for the time being, because I just wanna to stick to unclose and I think have you know written out the unclose angle already. But it's, it's hard because I, I have a lot of hope as an individual for the plastics treaty negotiations. I want it to succeed. I'm just pretty skeptical because I've seen my wonderful treaty unclose not succeed in that way.
Yeah, it's really interesting. And one immediate question that I want to ask you is, do you find yourself needing to remind people of the content of these treaties? It feels like it's so easy to forget what's actually in these documents. Yeah, and there are a lot of misconceptions about UNCLOS. For example, the distinction between the continental shelf and the EEZ is rarely repeated in, in more popular literature, I would say. Um, there's also misconceptions around freedom of navigation, in large part because the foreign policy angle is what gets repeated again and again. So one state's interpretation is, is taught as if it's what's in the treaty and it's a, as if it's a consensus interpretation. Hmm. And then also it's just a really big and detailed treaty. And I have heard from people who were involved in the unclosed negotiations in the 70s, who are now themselves in their 80s and 90s, that after their generation, graduate level education really shifted away from the international law of the sea. And that there, there isn't a lot of scholarship in this area because there wasn't a lot of training once the unclosed negotiations were done. So I think there's a real need for me to know about this treaty and to tell other people, because there's a lot of lot to draw on. There's a lot of legal and conceptual resources in there. And also, we made a lot of mistakes with Unclosed that we don't want to make again. Hmm. I feel like there's also a couple of very generalizable themes in your description of the challenges of meeting the plastic pollution problem, right? One is that we don't have, even at the national level, right? Like the United States doesn't have a Department of the Environment, right? Like one of the main challenges we have in bureaucratic solutions to environmental problems is that we have different agencies or different treaties focusing on like a specific a specific jurisdiction that's part of a larger system with connectivity between them. And so, you know, the worst case is almost you can have like turf wars between different departments trying to address different aspects of the same problem. And you also mentioned this issue of, of a lack of clarity or vagueness, which I think is also very common in just general legislation, right? Oh, reasonable use. There's these, these terms you hear about, like sufficient, reasonable, and it makes sense when you when you think about the process that likely led to this. And again, in the United States, right, this is part of the relationship between the legislative and the executive branch, theoretically, is that the executive branch is unpacking this legislatively vague language when it does the implementation. But there, there, there still is that work to be done. So to some extent, you're almost punting on some of the most difficult work when you're when you don't really clarify what you mean by these kind of key words that need to do a lot of regulatory work. No, a lot of those patterns are just writ large at the international level. Um, sometimes you get ambiguity because that's how you could achieve compromise. And right. the more disparate and the higher in number the actors are, the more likely you are to get ambiguity as a means of compromise. And then the point you made about the executive having to interpret this kind of ambiguous legislation, that's all individual states having to interpret one shared treaty and, and when you have ambiguity, it's like states agree to it because they're all seeing what they want to see. Um, mm. And so that's why there's a lot of interesting um, research to be done on the BBNJ agreement, because there's a lot of ambiguity in there. And, you know, having been in the negotiations myself, I know that states had different ideas in mind when they agreed to various, you know, language within the treaty. Um, and so it enters the realm of interpretation and implementation and often there's a lot of conflict and competition and contrast at that stage of the treaty. Um, 
<laughs> the work will never end. I want to make sure I ask you this question related to the fisheries workshop where I met you a couple months ago. And this was a workshop on fisheries governance, fisheries policy, co-sponsored by the Mercatus, the Mercatus Center at, the, at George Mason University, as well as the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh, where, which was also hosting us. So I'd love to hear from you kind of what interested and interests you about this working group and what are you, how are you hoping it proceeds moving forward? Yeah, the main thing that interested me about the working group was the other people who were invited, um, many of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't, but then I looked up and I, I thought, oh, that's something I want to learn about. And, and honestly, I attended because those organizations that you mentioned that collaborated to put on this workshop, they made it easy. You know, the communications were good. It was during the summer. And so for me, I think I could learn. I might have a good time and it's easy to do. Of course, I'm going to go. Um, and it was even better than I thought because the conversation was so dynamic throughout. And um, it was sort of a structured workshop, which initially I'm a little skeptical about. You know, you have group activities and sticky notes and whatnot, but the facilitators did a wonderful job. And I found myself getting in really heated, but in a good way, you know, two or three person conversations. And then 40 minutes later, I would sit back and I would listen to some other groups, heated conversations. And everybody had some angle on fisheries, but very different angles in terms of scale, in terms of the person's discipline, their recent research experience. And so one day was so fruitful for my thinking and for my knowledge um, that that I really enjoyed it. And I, I don't know what will come next. I think, you know, this podcast came out of it. Um, I published a report um, with Mercatus as a result of uh, the workshop. Just like plastics, for me, for fishing, I'm not a fishing scholar, a scholar of fisheries. I'm an unclosed scholar. And so I'm interested in so far as I can bring insights from unclosed and the unclosed centered ocean governance regime to the question of fisheries. Um, and also what contemporary fisheries issues tell me about what's happening in unclosed. So I feel like it's my job to keep that specific angle because that's what I'm good at. And also that's what I want to get better at. In my mind, it helped also that there was a good mix of academics and professionals and practitioners, which for me as a social scientist, anytime I can talk to someone who has experiences that aren't mine, it's basically just data. They're kind of communicating data to me. It's like, oh, what is your experience? Like, oh, that's I'm learning something new about the world, even if it's a comment about the person themselves primarily that mm -hmm. I think I'm learning about. I really enjoyed that day. It was impressive. I mean, I think one day it doesn't seem like a lot of time but we definitely got a fair i mean i got a fair amount out of that that single day and at the university of pittsburgh well and they hosted a nice dinner the night before so for me it was like a day and a half because the conversation started early that's and right it really um impressed upon me the idea that having good interpersonal relations facilitates the work because that first dinner made us all a little more comfortable with one another you, you learned mm. people's names. You got to know, okay, who traveled from where. And so the next day when the workshop starts, you can kind of hit the ground running of, okay, I already know this person. They got a good night's sleep. Let's talk about fisheries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
often I've been to like two day workshops and the, and the second day is often the best one. Cause you've actually like had dinner and warmed up a bit. Yeah. So Elizabeth, before we wrap up, I have a couple more questions for you. One is I'm aware that you're working on a book on oceans governance. So I'd love to hear you talk about what your goals are for this book and what it's really about. Is it primarily about UNCLOS or, or is it taking a different angle? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. And thank you for asking because I need to be asked at least once a year so that I actually finish it. <laughs> um, the book is provisionally titled Planetary Geopolitics and the Ocean Governance Regime, um, which sounds cool because it is cool. Um, it is the book version of my dissertation, although I totally rewrote it a couple of years ago um, and I submitted it. I got reviews back. I don't have a contract yet, but I'm still planning on making a major revision and resubmitting it. Um, at this point, it's planned for my sabbatical in 2025. So I, I am letting it sit on the back burner and I, I feel a little bit of guilt about that. Um, it's so easy to get wrapped up in articles. You know, they're like mm -hmm. more bite-sized chunks. But it's, it's my perspective on the function and dysfunction of UNCLOS in the 21st century. And so it, it makes a single argument, which is that much of the dysfunction in UNCLOS that we see today is a, a product of a regime design that is inflexible in response to technological change and scientific knowledge production. Um, so it goes back to that approach of my dissertation of we have this regime, it's staying the same, yet the material context, technology, geology, ecology, and also our understanding of that material context through scientific knowledge production is changing. And the, the treaty doesn't seem to be adjusting to that. Um, and so there's five case chapters and in each one, I'm sort of taking that angle of what is the dysfunction and how is it related to this kind of mismatch between change in the material world and the treaty itself? So fingers crossed. Does it make it, I mean, it's a, it's very timely. Does it, um, does the fact that things are changing so much make it harder to feel like it's a completed project when you can have kind of, always, there's, there's kind of always an update waiting around the corner? Yeah, well, a lot of it is more historical. Um, Okay. Like, some, like some is about seabed mining, for example. Um, although that, yeah, actually that, that is a challenge. <laughs> Not one I've been thinking about recently, but now I'm even more anxious about it. But um, I think that I get out my concern about staying up to date with articles that I can get out faster. Like, you know, my recent articles about plastics are written now because the plastics treaty negotiations are happening now. Mm -hmm. So I think the book manuscript I'm trying to make a deeper statement that is more broadly applicable. And so while 21st century dysfunction is like a motivator, it's a thing that I'm, I'm trying to explain, um, small changes in like the, the contours of overfishing, for example, are not as relevant um, to the manuscript. But I think that's something I'll have to think about closely when I revisit it on sabbatical. That's a good time for it. Well, so Elizabeth, this has been great. Before we wrap up, are there any topics that you want to return to to kind of tie up some loose ends? Or is there a topic that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that we do? I think the last thing I want to say is that it is still valuable for the United States to ratify UNCLOS. 
Um, 167 states plus the EU, our members of UNCLOS, have ratified. That's a lot for an international treaty. The United States hasn't, mostly because of the international seabed authority stuff. And a, a lot of people who oppose ratification say, oh, well, we're, we're following most of the treaty anyway. So it doesn't really matter whether we ratify or not. But if we were to ratify, we would have access to these institutions. We could bring a case to the tribunal on the law of the sea. We could help shape seabed mining rules. We could make a formal claim to our continental shelf as the process is supposed to happen through, through this commission. We can't do those things unless we ratify. And it really hurts our credibility as the United States that we haven't ratified, that we're asking everybody else to follow these rules to the letter that we helped to negotiate, we we led parts of the negotiations, but that we aren't going to abide by those rules, not formally ourselves. Um, so it comes up about once a decade. Um, I make a point of, of talking about it in my classes because this isn't a, a dead and gone issue. It's, it's an active issue. And I think the more time goes on, the more important it is that we more fully and formally participate in UNCLOSE. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.